Welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And this is our October roundup of all that's been happening on the blog and podcast over the last four weeks or so. It's been a busy time, both healthcare-wise and politically. We are talking to you on the 5th of November, where the UK has currently just started its second lockdown, and we're awaiting the results of an election in America. So there's lots happening, but we are going to focus on some healthcare, some education, and some things that hopefully we can take into everyday practice. There's been an awful lot on the blog this month, Simon, so we're going to have to uh, break the habit of a lifetime and keep it as short and sweet as possible. That's the idea. I think we may be a little bit longer than usual, but that's that's okay. There's just, there's just been a lot of really good stuff coming out. There really has. And let's just crack straight into it and get on to some stuff about trauma and tranexamic acid, because we've had two blog posts about tranexamic acid over the last month. The first one was about giving it IM. Now, the whole aspect of TXA is an interesting one, I think. We've bought into it at St. Emelins and in the UK generally. We've talked before about the two doses, the bolus and then the infusion, but this really seems to have brought to light that there are other ways of doing this that go slightly differently to what's been used in CRASH in the past. The CRASH 2 and CRASH 3 both use the same protocol, which is one gram given over 10 minutes and then one gram given over eight hours. I have it on first-hand evidence from the people who designed the trial that that was essentially because they thought that people who were bleeding would bleed out the TXA, so they had to continue doing the TXA for eight hours. But in fact, that's not how it's given in cardiac theatres. It's not how it's given in other settings. So it was always a bit of an odd one, really, particularly when they did the same in Crash 3. So there has been an interest in whether we can do it by other routes, particularly uh, intramuscular, because that'd be great, wouldn't it, if um, you could give an IM injection, particularly in austere environments, in the pre-hospital environment, where it could be quicker, it's a lot easier to give. So they've done an interesting study taking some patients with severe trauma, and many of them died. So these are proper sick patients, a pharmacokinetics trial. The patients had their initial dose IV, the 10-minute one. And then when they came into hospital, they got a dose of IM and they monitored the tranexamic acid levels for about 24 hours after that. You should read the paper. It's very interesting. It's quite complicated, this pharmacokinetics thing, because they have to subtract the effect of the IV dose to work out what the IM dose was doing. But the bottom line here is that if you do that, you give the one gram IV and then a one gram uh, IM, your TXA levels are therapeutic for at least eight hours. And it, it was irrespective of whether or not the patients were, of how severely injured the patients were. In fact, the most severely injured patients had the longer and the higher levels of TXA, possibly because they were too sick to actually metabolize it. So this is really contradictory to everything I've ever heard about giving IM injections into patients who are shocked. And I think it's got legs there. So I think it's, it's potential for practice change, particularly because we know that lots of people who are supposed to get that second infusion of the TXA, the eight hour one, don't get it or it's stopped, or it's disconnected, or it's forgotten, all of those kind of things. This could be a way of delivering TXA for the full eight hours with two injections and get it all done and dusted in the emergency department, don't need to worry about it again. So really interesting stuff. Not not definitive yet, but really, really interesting. So only a small study, and as you say, theoretical and pharmacokinetic, but just the 30 patients. But the idea that we can get the TXA in the blood in whatever way is useful. And this did have some then discussion on Twitter from others. And I know the Royal London don't keep to the crash protocol. And they may give two one gram doses IV or even a two gram dose as a bolus at the beginning. It seems to me that the key is not necessarily how we give it, 
But just giving it is the important thing. I think you're right, yes. And the Royal London have moved to one gram IV, then one gram IV for bleeding patients and for head injured patients whom they suspect have got intracranial bleeds, they're giving a two gram bolus. Now, there is an issue with the two gram bolus. A TXA in very high levels can cause um, seizures. So that is that is quite a controversial one. But yes, you're right. People are thinking about this in different ways. And I think that's good. We actually had another post on TXA later in the month. Let's chat about that now, just as we're on the topic. So this was a post we co-published with Rebel EM that uh, Zaf wrote. And this is about the STAMP trial. Yeah, so the STAMP trial was a randomised control trial over in the US of tranexamic acid pre-hospital trial. This is great because of all the countries in the world, North America, particularly America, have been the most sceptical about TXA. So it's great to see a paper published there. And it's a, it's a great piece of work to do this pre-hospital trial in um, fairly sick patients, randomising to either TXA or to placebo. Well, in fact, they didn't actually. They randomised them to either the normal regime or to a two gram bolus or to placebo. And then they combined the, the two gram and the the normal regime together for, for reasons which are a little bit unclear in my mind. Essentially, what they've done is um, taken just under a 1,000 patients, about 927 patients, randomised them to uh, TXA or non-TXA and followed them up. And they've actually followed them up for neurological outcome at six months, which I think is brilliant because one of the criticisms of the crash trials is that mortality isn't everything, particularly in things like head injury. You really want to know what the functionality is. Of- so I think that was really, really good. Interestingly, in this trial, they've concluded that there's there's no real difference between the two treatments because at six months then the Glasgow outcome scale extended is pretty much similar to between the two groups. My reading is very different and and my reading is, is similar to many other people who've looked extensively at TXA. They did demonstrate a mortality benefit and the mortality benefit that they demonstrated is about the same as was in CRASH-3. That kind of fits with all the other CRASH trials for mortality. If you've got better outcome in terms of mortality but the same neurological outcome at six months. It just means you have more survivors with the same level of neurological outcome. So that's a positive trial. It's just woefully underpowered to actually demonstrate the difference which the crash trial showed because the crash trials were over 10,000 patients, over 20,000 patients in crash two, and this is just 927. No doubt, well, there is no doubt because lots of people were jumping up and down from North America on Twitter going, this proves that TXA doesn't work. Actually, it doesn't. It just means exactly the same as what the crash trial showed. So we've got TXA and we'll talk more about bleeding in a moment because there's yet more posts on it. So this is TXA and trauma. I think our feeling at St. Emlyn's is it's a good thing. We want to give it early if we can. There may be other ways to give it rather than the traditional crash protocol, which was IV and then an infusion. But the main thing is think of it and give it. And in my pre-hospital service, we give blood pre-hospital and plasma. It's part of the aid memoir there that if you're cracking blood open, you have a have you given TXA as part of that protocol. We're, we're on side. And it's good to see the Americans thinking about it at the very least and publishing on it. Yeah, all new information is fantastic. So it would never, ever, ever, ever at St. Emlyn's say that a trial is not helpful. This is a very helpful trial and it's good to put it into the mix and to to look at combining it with other trials and things like meta-analysis. Now, next up, you are very lucky, Simon, because you got to go to Lisbon. It must have been really nice there. Yeah, I had a lovely trip to Lisbon from my office, but I did have the the honour and the privilege to go and speak at the IMED conference in Lisbon. And this is one I've been trying to get to for about two or three years, but it, it usually clashes with some other trips so I've not been able to go. It's a fantastic conference run for medical students in Lisbon uh, across the whole of Portugal. And it's really professionally done, actually. I really enjoyed uh, going along to it, um, giving a presentation. I talked about the five free, easy and achievable techniques to improve your resuscitation. So zero point survey, 10 in 10, flying the patient, hot debriefs, that kind of stuff. 
And I really enjoyed being there. I was delighted to be invited. And if you are a medical student or if you get an invite from this group, I would strongly recommend you go along. And Just in case there's any confusion, of course, with our current state of play with COVID, Simon was doing this online, so has yet to experience the joys of Lisbon, but maybe another time. And I think uh, it's not the European conference going to be in Portugal, hopefully next year. It is. And I, I was lucky enough to be in Lisbon last year on a family trip went over there for a wedding actually and it's a wonderful city and I would strongly encourage anybody to to go there if they can and if they can go there for the USAM conference and and hopefully join us there that'd be even even better great so now it, we probably should mention the hot topic of coronavirus COVID-19 and this is again a bit more about hydroxychloroquine but perhaps an opportunity for us also to talk about where we think we've got to with the recovery trials I know you've been heavily involved with that Simon and and there's been papers published with that month so firstly let's just tackle hydroxychloroquine in the treatment of hospitalized COVID-19 patients good bad indifferent don't mind who knows well this this is interesting actually because this paper was published in New England Journal of Medicine it's actually stuff which we've been acting on for months the the actual report in in the press and from the government saying that we should stop using hydroxychloroquine came out, I think, in July. But it's only now that we get to see the paper. And that was a criticism. But I, I kind of understand why it's happened. It's just trying to get the data out there very quickly. But we can now do the proper critical appraisal. But in essence, the recovery trial is a platform adaptive trial running in the UK amongst COVID patients in hospital. It's huge. We've now got, I think, close to 14,000 patients in the study. And there's a number of different arms. So in, in the hydroxychloroquine group, and they compared uh, 1,561 patients who took hydroxychloroquine to 3,155 who had routine care. Looking at 28-day mortality, there was no difference really. In fact, the mortality was slightly higher with um, hydroxychloroquine, but it wasn't statistically significant. No benefit. And to some extent, this doesn't surprise me. Um, hydroxychloroquine, if it was going to work, it's an antiviral. And what we understand now is that the most, most of the patients who were admitting to hospital with COVID-19 actually have a pneumonitis, which is probably immune related. It's not really due to the amount of virus in your body. It's the fact that you're having the reaction to it. So hydroxychloroquine was probably never going to work in this group. If it's going to do anything, it would be in prophylaxis, but we've previously reviewed that. It doesn't seem to work. Or in prevention, and we've previously reviewed studies of that. And again, it doesn't seem to, to work. So I think the, the data's up on hydroxychloroquine, I'm afraid. I don't, I don't think it's going to have any benefits and we shouldn't be prescribing it now. So we've covered that particular drug, but I know recovery is continuing. It hasn't uh, by any means stopped. In fact, it's probably picked up pace with the number of things it's looking at. And I know you've just been part of a paper that was published this month, Simon. Well, it's not on the blog, but why not just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I was, I was fortunate enough to be on the writing committee for a paper published in The Lancet this month um, on the use of lipinavirotonavir, or the commercial name is Kaletra, which is an anti HIV drug, which was again promoted as a as an antiviral drug in in uh, COVID nineteen. To cut the long story short, I'm going to put a blog up on about it this month, so with more of the detail. But the bottom line again is that that's been shown not to work. These trials are incredibly important that we find out not only what does work, and we know that dexamethasone works on the back of the recovery trial, but also that we don't waste our time and energy on, on therapies which don't work. We can put hydroxychloroquine and Kaletra to bed. And what are the things that are still up and have yet to go to bed? What are the things that are having a nightcap while we investigate them? Zithromycin was one of the original drugs into the recovery trial. So I don't know this data, but I'm, I'm guessing that there must be a lot of patients who've had azithromycin as part of the randomization process, but they haven't called time on it yet. Yet. That suggests to me that there's still the opportunity there that there may be a benefit to this drug. It sounds to me as if they've not been able to demonstrate that there isn't. So I think that's really interesting. I'm quite excited to see what comes out with azithromycin. And we're also randomizing to monoclonal antibodies and convalescent plasma 
um, which is also part of the randomization process. And then there's a second randomization for very severely ill patients for tocilizumab, which is a, a focused immunomodulatory drug. What's coming on the horizon? I've heard, and this is entirely rumor, so don't quote me on it, that we might be looking at thromboprophylaxis next as well. So I can see the trial going on for quite some time. And I think the therapies that we'll be trialing will become a little bit more focused and a little bit more targeted. So I'm really, really excited about recovery. I think it's a brilliant idea. And quite frankly, the UK is leading the world in COVID research through this and many of the other trials that are out there. And while we're talking about COVID and you've mentioned thromboprophylaxis, let's just go to Dan's post talking about VTE and COVID-19. We've had excellent podcasts and blogs from Dan, uh, who is our resident clotologist. This is worth a read. It's a very thorough post. What did you take from this about VTE and COVID-19? For me, it seems to be getting a little bit more complicated. It is. And if we remember the conversations we were having in the first wave, there was a realization when, when the first wave hit us that a lot of these patients are, are, are sticky. They get clots or do they? And what sort of clots do they get and where are they and how significant are they? So clearly there are some patients who get big PEs, but then we know that if you're really sick, you can get big PEs, whether you get them more often or not in COVID, probably, but the evidence is actually a little bit contradictory in parts. You have very high D-dimers um, in a lot of these patients, but does that mean you're having big clots or micro clots and should you be um, anticoagulating them or should you just be doing prophylactic doses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Dan goes through all the evidence in here and it's, it's too long for me to summarize it all here, but I would point out his four conclusions. The first is that we know that patients who are admitted to hospital need thromboprophylaxis. Bottom line, if you're going to hospital, you should have low molecular weight heparin at prophylactic doses. That's a given for everybody, right? Right. Number two, um, if you're going to do that, use a weight-based approach. I think most of us do that, but um, that's important. Number three, we need to think about how we start new therapies. It's very easy in the face of a pandemic to panic, uh, for want of a better word, and to say, oh gosh, you know, the D-dime has gone up. I must give therapeutic levels of uh, anticoagulation to these patients. But I think you need to be a lot more thoughtful about that. At the moment, we have to do it really on a case-by-case basis and see what's going on. But we do need to maintain that evidence-based agility, which we talked about last month, I think, to say that there's going to be evidence coming out. There's going to be information coming out fairly soon. And so we need to be very mindful to keep our eye on current guidelines, current research. And of course, if anything comes up, we'll put it on the blog. And then lastly, if you are treating these patients and there is a trial knocking around, then you should be actively recruiting into it. We need the evidence and we don't have it at the moment. So any opportunity to get involved in research of thromboprophylaxis, get on it. And if it does appear in one of the platform trials, then brilliant. And that'll get us um, large numbers very quickly. And that's perhaps a good point to plug the idea that this has been a real opportunity for emergency physicians to get involved with and interested in research again. I think there is a danger sometimes that we are on the treadmill in the department of just getting patients through without that pause to think and to do what may help us in the future. But this is pause for thought. We can make a difference. Let's not kid ourselves. Coronavirus is probably here to stay whatever happens with vaccines and the rest. So we need to know how to treat it as best we can. Now, surgical patients always had this question, or for the last few years anyway, of appendicitis and the best treatment for it. And Simon, there's been a recent paper published about antibiotics versus surgery. Now, this has been on the cards for a while. I'm not aware of anyone who's quite got there yet with doing it. Do you think this trial helps us decide that antibiotics is a 
as an option? I think it's one of those trials, which again, I'm not entirely sure I agree with the conclusions. So this is a, a paper published in the England Journal of Medicine. Again, 1,500 odd patients with appendicitis were randomized to either a conservative management with antibiotics or straight for an appendicectomy or an appendectomy, as our, our colleagues might say. Obviously, if they were really sick, they couldn't do this. If you've already perforated, then obviously that's not going to work, is it? So just those patients who you made a clinical diagnosis, can you treat them with antibiotics and see how they go? Or do you need to do an appendicectomy? It's a good question to ask. I mean, nobody wants to have surgery, I suppose. Although I've got to say with new laparoscopic techniques, well, they're not new now, are they? But certainly the holes are a lot smaller than when I used to do appendicectomies. And people recover from quite quite rapidly and very quickly. In this study, what they did is they, they did the randomization the two groups and they followed them up. And essentially, um, they said that antibiotics were non-inferior to appendicectomy on the basis of, of, of healthcare status. How are the patients feeling at about a month down the line? That's quite an interesting way of looking at it because it's not you know, from a surgical procedure. It's how are you feeling at the end? They found no difference really. And so you could say, oh, well, okay, fine. I'll just do antibiotics and see how you go. But actually, if you look in the data, about a third of these patients required an, a, an appendicectomy in the control group. So you might say, okay, I'll start you on the, on the um, antibiotics. But by the end of the, the trial, which is at 90 days, 29% of the patients had had to have an appendix removed. And that rate of requiring an appendix to be removed was still going up at the end of 90 days. And if you extrapolated that to, let's say, a year, if the lines continued at the same rate, about half of them would need an appendicectomy. So then you've got really sort of got to say, well, actually, it's not as if it always works or it doesn't always work. We've got a, an operation which is pretty quick, very safe, um, will be definitive, will stop you from getting it again, um, at the risk of probably a, at least at least a 30% chance and probably more of you requiring an appendicectomy later. I think if it was me on the basis of this study, I'd just go for the appendicectomy, get it over and done with, sorted. I think that's my reading as well. I'm not sure that I'd really want to just trust and all I just don't really I'm a bit of a simple physician we've talked about that many times before but quite how that inflamed nasty appendix is going to just have those antibiotics get to it and sort it all out and make things better and appendicitis did seem to me that one of the main things where yeah let's take it out and get rid of it you don't really need it so have a have an operation antibiotics themselves we mustn't forget are not without side effects and so you may well end up with worsening tummy pain, vomiting, nausea, rash, whatever it might be related to antibiotics, which you wouldn't probably get after an appendicectomy. So not sure this takes us much further. No doubt there may be surgical doctors who've read it who will ask us to send patients home on antibiotics. But I'm not sure that that's the way I would like to take it in, in our hospital at the moment. I suppose if you had a patient who was really didn't want surgery, then you could offer this as a treatment. That, so this does demonstrate that's um, an option. They also did find that if you had a appendicolith, then you were more likely to get uh, recurrence. So that's probably not a good thing. But there's one one thing that did uh, did sort of amuse me is um, I wonder what the rate of uh, resolution would be if you gave them nothing at all. Yeah, we've never really thought about that, have we? Although who knows how many of the patients come into us with abdominal pain who we send home who never get a diagnosis and they seem to be all right. There's so many unknowns in medicine, aren't there? But actually, that's part of what makes it interesting. Yeah, but just for the record, we're not suggesting anybody does that. Oh, no, let's be perfectly clear about that. As always, just to remind you, everything we talk about on the podcast, you need to go and read up about yourselves and yeah. you need to make decisions and you need to talk to your department. And we are merely trying to present to you opinions about the evidence as we read it. This does not give you any sort of credence to go off and, and, and start changing your protocol without proper consultation. I'd agree. Don't get sacked on our behalf. Please. Don't have yet more about blood. 
blood has been a big thing this month. And this is about blood products in trauma, the ITACTIC trial. Yeah, so I've been looking out for this one for quite a long period of time, actually. And um, it's, a, it's a great study. It's a multi-center RCT looking at things like TEG and ROTEM management of patients with severe trauma. So we know that patients with severe trauma, particularly bleeding trauma, have um, acute traumatic coagulopathies. The clotting and management of that is really important. And we've made great strides in how we manage these patients with um, what I think a lot of us are doing now, the one-to-one-to-one resuscitation packs, major hemorrhage protocols, TXA, that kind of stuff. But that's a generic approach, isn't it? This patient's bleeding. I'm just going to give them this, this, and this, and hope that it covers all the bases. Wouldn't it be better if you could target which bit of the coagulation system is wrong and be very specific in how you treat it? And that's what TEG and ROTEM or viscoelastic hemostatic assays, if you want to use the, the, the non-branded term, do. So you put, put some blood in um, the machine and it tells you whether you've got a problem with clot activation, clot stability, clot strength, and then you can give the appropriate treatments. On the blog, we've got a, a little guide about how they work. In my head, I thought very much that what this would show would be that doing targeted specific treatment for these patients would clearly be better. And we sure end up getting a, a TEG or a ROTEM machine in our resources because that's what I want. And I'm delighted to say that that's not what the trial said at all. The trial came out with, and their outcome was whether or not the patients were were still requiring major hemorrhage protocols at uh, 24 hours. They didn't find a difference. Now, there's some caveats with that. The first is that they powered this trial on the basis of, I think, expecting about a third of the patients to be coagulopathic on arrival, but they weren't because the, the difference in time between when they designed it and when they were doing it People had stopped using things like saline in the pre-hospital environment. We'd get better at keeping the patients warm. Pre-hospital systems had improved. And so there were fewer patients who were truly coagulopathic within this group. And of course, that's the group in whom you would expect to find a difference. The other thing is whether that, well, is, is that the right outcome, whether you're still requiring the major hemorrhage pack at 24 hours? I think probably you would like to look at mortality would be a better thing to look at. When you dig into this, there's a couple of interesting things. So the, the, the global picture is they've not found a difference, and that's your primary outcome. But in terms of hypothesis generating, there's some quite interesting ones. There's probably a benefit in those patients, or the, well, there's more likely to be a benefit, and the data suggests it, that if you are coagulopathic on arrival, you probably did better with um, targeted management, although it's not proven in this trial because it's underpowered to show it. Um, and also, really interestingly, if you've got a severe traumatic brain injury, it did make a difference and quite a large one. Although the numbers are small, the confidence intervals are wide. It was a planned subgroup analysis. We don't normally think, I don't think, that in severe traumatic brain injury, we know that bleeding is a problem, but we, I don't think we manage the coagulopathy in the same way for a brain injury as we do for somebody who's been stabbed in the chest. Maybe this is a lesson that even, even managing the coagulopathy to prevent very small increases in bleeds in the brain is actually really, really important sometimes maybe don't give enough thought to the isolated head injury in the same way as we do if we can see the blood in glorious technicolor on a ct scan or all over the floor and those microscopic bleeds are very very important aren't they this paper is open access it's easy to find there's a a link to click on in the blog post itself 
Corinne Brohe, a great friend of St. Emlyn's, is one of the lead authors. And so I'd highly recommend you go and have a look, not least to find out a bit about Teg and Rotem, but also in how to conduct a trial in trauma, which is not the most straightforward group in which to do these things. Again, hopping around the post a little bit, but let's stay on the same topic. There's another journal club about use of plasma. And this time it is about traumatic brain injury that we've just been thinking about with that last paper. There's been an awful lot about TBI recently. And it's sometimes, I suppose, nice to just exercise our brains on other people's brains and try and work out how we can do things better. What did this say to you, Simon, this plasma use in TBI? So this is a really interesting paper. It's a reanalysis of the PAMPA trial, which I'm sure you remember, Ian, was the randomized controlled trial of early use of plasma in HEM services in North America. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine and showed something like a 9% benefit if you gave plasma early. That's amazing and and, and has a big influence um, around the world on the basis of those findings, but always seems remarkably maybe just too big a, a factor to, to, for us to understand. We couldn't really quite get why it was important. So in this secondary analysis, they've looked uh, specifically at those patients who had um, head injury and whether or not there was a particular benefit to that group. And the bottom line is, yes, absolutely. It looks like that the vast majority of the benefit that we saw overall in the PAMPA trial was due to those patients who had head injury. That's not really what we expected because the idea was that you'd be giving the uh, the plasma to prevent large volume bleeds and acute dramatic coagulopathy and all of that kind of stuff. But it does seem that again, and in keeping with what we were just saying, is that managing coagulation in patients with brain injury is so, so important. So when the neurosur- when you're referring your next patient to the neurosurgeons and they ask you all the detailed questions about clotting and drugs and all that kind of stuff, they're right. It's absolutely true. This is, it's a secondary analysis. We've got to be cautious with that. It's hypothesis generating. It's not a randomized control specifically looking at this group. But I think there's a lot of things coming together in my head at the moment that this is an area where we need to be very vigilant about how we manage coagulation in head injured patients. So we've covered an awful lot of trauma here this month. We've got TXA, we've got TEG and Rotem, we've now got plasma. There's a lot to read. We can nowhere near give it enough time on the podcast. So please do go and have a look at the blog. And if you're running a journal club, maybe as part of your ED or pre-hospital service, there's loads here to have a look at and analyze for yourself. Don't take our word for it. Go and have a look at the papers and see if you agree with the the findings of the people who've written our blog posts. It's always good to make sure you're aware of the primary literature. We're almost there, Simon. A busy, busy month. Natalie May also had a second post after her one on the iTactic trial about pulse checking in cardiac arrest. And this was about using ultrasound. Is this going to change your management? Well, it might, actually. I think we know... And we see this all the time in clinical practice and in simulation that people are absolutely dreadful at detecting pulses, but actually detecting output's quite important. Now that we have bedside ultrasound in the recess room, what this paper basically shows is that you're much, much, much more likely to be able to detect um, pulse activity if you use an ultrasound as compared to if you use your fingers. So that's no great surprise to me. So yes, it could change my practice because I think if you want to know whether somebody's got a pulse, put the ultrasound machine on, it'll tell you. Having said that, for my personal practice, if I want to know they've got an output, I just do an echo. But then I can because I've had those skills. But if you didn't have those skills, actually detecting a pulse with just a, a linear array probe is a lot easier to do. So for me, probably not, but it could be something we could teach people who've maybe not done um, as much echo as we have. And there are other options as well. We've moved quite far in the direction of trying to get arterial lines into these patients early. 
maybe not during the actual arrest itself, but if you get a return of any sort of cardiac activity that's that's helpful. But I guess there's one thing you could do is put the ultrasound probe on to see if you can see a pulse. And when you see something, then get your art line and don't move and put the art line in at the same time. What we're really saying is we can move on in our resuscitation efforts bit beyond the stick your fingers on it and maybe use some of the technologies we've got to be a bit more accurate to has pulse doesn't have pulse and we've always talked about these high and low flow states and that sort of thing but it's a way of just moving a little bit beyond ALS and take it into the ultimate life support as we've started calling it in my trust one of the things natalie's done is she's she's re-jigged the data there very nicely and that shows us that it's not just about not being able to feel a pulse the other problem is people feeling a pulse when there was there isn't actually one there so fingers not good and as we move into our last post we did a podcast with liz crow i did a podcast about surviving the second wave now this was before there was an announcement of a second lockdown in the uk But this is very much looking at how we can all try and cope psychologically with what's going on at the moment. This was not about how we can use well-being or resilience. In fact, we banned those terms, but more about the simple stuff we can all do to keep going. Because I think we've said it before, haven't we? We're tired. We're tired of coronavirus. We're tired of being locked down. We're tired of having to self-isolate. It's all just getting in this day and age. we're, We're not like previous generations we are the click it, want it straight away, get it fixed, please sort me out fast generation. And we are having to learn to be patient. Let's give some really good tips about how to just do that, how to think about what's going on around you, to reframe it a little bit and to just keep going. I think whenever I listen to Liz, it helps me reframe the world. And I thought this is a very good podcast. And as you said, it's not all woe is me. It's not all I'm terrible. And it's not all, gosh, look how hard I'm working. There's, there's none of that. This is sort of more practical type ideas for us to just, to some extent, get on with it because we don't have an option. There isn't a plan B at the moment that we are going to have to deal with COVID. And so how are we going to do our best to get through this, which is a really tough time, but is also an incredibly, it's also a time where there's a lot of opportunity. I think one of the things that we've been, you know, it has been a privilege to be working in emergency medicine at a time when medicine is clearly so important to society. And so there are positives we can find there. And I think Liz's concept around getting a balance to the world is vital. It's going to get us through the winter. So if you haven't had a listen to that yet, maybe now as we enter our second lockdown, have a, go and find seek that out. It's on the St. Emlyn stream. In fact, it will just be just before this podcast that you've now successfully almost got to the end of. So an awful lot there, Simon. We've talked about many things, trauma and some other bits and pieces about blood. And we then mentioned coronavirus. I have, it's really great, I think, to be able to talk about medicine in the whole, not just focusing on that rather troublesome virus that we've all been dealing with. So Simon, that brings us to the end of an incredibly busy month. We've been through an awful lot. And do go back and have a read of those blog posts. We've not been able to cover them all in detail, but there's an awful lot there on the on the blog and loads of stuff that you can actually use day to day or just use to have a conversation in your departments about where you're going in the future that as emergency physicians, we find can really stimulate us and make us think. So have a read. We will be back next month. There are more posts already for the month of November. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you as always. Take care. Have fun.